Amen. Thank you, Eric. You can be seated. And if, uh, if you have a Bible or if you want to grab a Bible out of the seat back in front of you, I'd encourage you to follow along, to read these words. There's power in the words of God. And uh, we're not just teaching out of any book. We're teaching out of the Bible. We want to read the words of God um, and we want to uh, really devour them. We want to really soak them in, meditate, reflect on them. And so would love to have your eyes on the scripture. Uh, also, if you have not yet picked up one of our John journals, I would encourage you to do so. Those are available. It's a gift from us to you. Uh, they're available at our connect table out there. They're a white journal that says John on it. Would encourage you to grab one of those. Um, last week, Pastor Wes began teaching on John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, we're kind of walking through the gospel of John right now. John chapter 11 begins with the story of Lazarus. And we've, we've come to discover that Lazarus has uh, grown ill. And because of this sickness, uh, Mary and Martha have come to Jesus. They've sent word to Jesus uh, about this sickness. And Jesus receives this word and what does Jesus do with the word? And, and that's really what Wes kind of focused on, the first six verses last week. And the major point that Pastor Wes highlighted was this, that God is at all times pursuing his glory and he loves us. God is at all times pursuing his glory and he loves us. And it's important to hold these two ideas his glory and his love together because often what God is doing doesn't look like love, okay? And, and I'm gonna show that to us in the text. If you weren't here last week, um, you, you probably, your eyes kind of focused in on verse six of this passage and you were immediately kind of taken back and, and maybe moved to a place of curiosity of going, I, I don't understand, how does this make sense? And, and I wanna illustrate it to you before we get there. Um, and I'll explain it like this. This past week, I had an opportunity to connect with a friend that I served in ministry with uh, over 15 years ago. And uh, so he and I were on staff together and uh, he was doing uh, a lot of uh, audiovisual tech stuff, kind of producing some of the services that we were a part of. And he and I served together. And he wasn't married at that time. Um, but since has been married and had kids and he and one of his daughters were visiting the Salt Lake area this past week and they reached out and they said, hey, we would love to connect. We'd love to just hear what's going on. And uh, so we had a great time connecting and meeting over lunch. And what I discovered is that they were in town and their purpose for being here was that they were seeing a doctor uh, for treatment of a rare neurological disorder called misophonia. Now, I had never heard of misophonia. When he shared with me about this, I, I began to just Google search, and I was like, man, that's super rare. That's super odd. And, uh, and misophonia is basically a condition where patients experience a negative emotion a reaction to specific sounds. And typically, they're, they're pretty common sounds, like a ballpoint pen clicking. Anybody like you do that and your wife is like, please stop, right? Maybe you have misophonia. No, you probably don't. Tapping, typing, chewing, breathing, sneezing, 
tapping of the feet, like all, like some of these, and they move to a very negative reaction and emotion. And this has been very troublesome and it's really disoriented their life in many ways um, because there's things that we think of as common, but they're like, we can't stay in a hotel because of certain sounds. Every time we eat a meal, it has to be like, we have to make sure that there's music playing to kind of drown out some of the noise and, and, and interactions. And so just super, super rare. And, and uh, they had found a doctor in the area that was successful in treating misophonia. And I go, how did you discover this? Like, how did, how did you understand this? And he goes, you won't believe it. Uh, it's a crazy story. He said, during COVID... He had been laid off from his job, and so he was in ministry, and, and uh, he was once uh, leaving the church where we served together, uh, began working in tech industry, and uh, during COVID was laid off from his job, and so he was asked during that time uh, to come. One, one of the things that he, he did when we were serving in ministry together was he'd play guitar and lead worship. And so during his time of being laid off from his job, he was invited to come and, and lead worship for a marriage retreat. And so he's going, I, I would never, I would have never had time to go and serve at this, this marriage retreat, but I was like, hey, I'm not doing anything. Why don't I go and serve at this marriage retreat? And so he goes to this marriage retreat and a woman shared a testimony. They've been married for several, several years and eventually grew cold towards her husband and everything her husband was, was doing was annoying her, okay? Now this isn't meant to like, you're like, amen, pastor, right? And, and just because you're sitting there and you're like, I, I know the, like he is always, like when we eat, the way he eats just annoys me, right? Maybe we just got to learn patience. We don't, we're not struggling with misophonia. But what she began to describe is this coldness and this negative emotion and reaction towards her husband was actually this disorder misophonia and had nothing to do with her heart posture towards him. It was the way in which she heard sounds and processed those sounds. And so she was treated for it, and they're still happily married. You're like, some of you are gonna go look up misophonia and go like, I think I need to be healed, right? We need Jesus to love each other well, right? So he remembers hearing this story. He's at this retreat. He's leading worship. He hears this lady with this condition, misophonia, and he's like, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. And then begins seeing reactions from his daughter. It's, it's not something that comes on until they're eight or nine years old. And literally within a year period, he begins to see these reactions. He begins to see some of these same symptoms and his daughter, and he goes and he Google searches misophonia. He's like, I, I think this is what she had. And he's like, Justin, if I would not have been laid off from my job, I wouldn't have been there at that retreat. I wouldn't have heard of this, and I wouldn't have known how to care for my daughter. And in all of these circumstances, he just saw God orchestrating all of these events so that he could be there to be present, to hear this, to find the help that his daughter needed. And he goes, Justin, it was the greatest blessing that I left my job. And I'm sitting there hearing this and I go, that sounds crazy, right? Like none of us look at this life and go, you know what? It's the greatest blessing 
that, you know, I was able to lose my job. And we look at this story and we go into the life of Mary and Martha and we go, you know what? It's the greatest blessing that my brother Lazarus has died. That seems totally outside of our perspective. But that's why it's important for us to draw in. One of the the quotes that I feel like has stuck around Church of the Valley for a long while, uh, we preached many, many years ago. Um, uh, I can't, honestly, I can't even remember the, the sermon context, but this quote surfaced during that time. It's a, it's a John Piper quote that said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may only be aware of three of them. And this is something that has stuck with us and honestly gives a lot of comfort that God is at work, that God is moving, that God is doing something. And he's doing 10,000 different things and we may be aware of three of them. We have no idea how God is orchestrating or working in all the events of our life. And Piper articulated this with several biblical examples. He said, you might find yourself in prison and God actually may be advancing the gospel among the guards and making the free brothers bold. Philippians 1, the life of Paul. You may find yourself with a painful thorn and God may actually be making the power of Christ more beautiful in weakness. Paul again. You may found yourself with a dead brother that Jesus could have healed and God may be preparing a way to show his glory. The example of Lazarus here. You may find yourself sold into slavery, accused falsely of sexual abuse, and forgotten in a prison cell, and God may be preparing you to rule a nation. Story of Joseph. You may, be, you may wonder why a loved one is left in unbelief so long and find that God is preparing a picture of his patience as a powerful missionary. The life of Paul again. You may live in all purity and humility and truth only to... to, to um, only to end being rejected and killed. And God may be making a parable of his son, an extension of his merciful suffering in yours, the life of Jesus. And here's what we see is Lazarus has become ill. Word was sent to Jesus that he's not well. And how does Jesus respond? John 11, verse six, it tells us, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. We read that and, and we go, it doesn't look like love. It doesn't look like that is, that is one who has a heart posture for your well-being and care. We, we tend to believe that love is always the reduction of pain, the reducing of pain, that, that if we can just minimize pain in someone's life, if we can minimize discomfort, that's actually love. And we've bought into that. And we live in a culture that celebrates that. I've read a recent book called The Comfort Crisis. And uh, if you haven't read it, it's encouraging. I would say that we all have a comfort idolatry. Like we are all bought into this idea of like seeking for comfort. And so things that are actually meant for our good, that God is trying to produce, that that actually are going to cause some discomfort, that God is, is doing that to to produce something in us. But many times the very things that God is wanting to produce in us, we resist because we, we're idolatrous people and we, we seek comfort. But the way in which God loves us is he actually allows discomfort to come into our life to produce something in us. 
And so in verse six, when we, when we read verse six, the word so there actually means therefore in the Greek language. And so it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, ill he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So maybe we're here this morning, we're asking ourselves the question, why is Jesus allowing me to experience certain things? Could this be his love for you? And this is why John goes to great lengths to tell us several times and in several different ways, the relationship between this family and Jesus. He's, he's ensuring that it's not just uh, his uh, neglect. He's ensuring that it's not just uh, his, his not knowing. He's making sure that it's not his, his sense of not caring for. He, he, it goes on very clearly and tells us all, three different times that, that this is someone he loves. In John eleven three. 3, so the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. John eleven five. 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. But there's also an interesting reference to a future event in verse two. And we didn't catch this last week. Maybe you read this and this kind of drew your mind because maybe you've heard the story, uh, but we don't necessarily put it in chronological order the way John describes it here. In John chapter 11, verse two, it says, we're, we're kind of given this descriptor of Mary and we're kind of told who she is. And it says, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, the only problem with that is that hasn't actually happened yet. That doesn't happen until John chapter 12. And John chapter 12 is where Mary comes in unrestrained worship and begins worshiping Jesus and pours this, you know, valuable, valuable uh, oil upon his feet and begins worshiping him. And so what we see is John is recording these events and, and these events have been written down and, and John has been presenting the information somewhat chronologically, but there's different aspects of the story that John wants to give us insight into. And he's saying, hey, I just want you to know that this is the woman who loves and adores Jesus and worships Jesus with unrestrained worship. I want you to know that this story that's playing out here, the way that the story is unfolding, it can look as if Jesus is neglecting them, that Jesus is not uh, aware of, of how to be present in their needs. And it could be seen that Mary and Martha are growing quite disturbed with how this situation is unfolding. And we can almost read Mary's words to Jesus as words, of, or Martha's words as words of rebuke, when in, in sense, like we don't, we need to have vision of John chapter 12. We need to have a picture of what's going to happen that ultimately this terrible situation that they're experiencing is going to lead to worship. That he's producing something in them that it's for their good that he's, that he's ultimately trying to produce to see Jesus as their greatest treasure. Now, I borrowed a lot from John Piper, all right? So here's another quote from him. Love is doing whatever you have to do to help people see and treasure the glory of God as their supreme joy. 
I, I would encourage you to write that down. I would encourage you to take a snapshot of it, to wrestle with this. Love is doing whatever you have to do to help people see and treasure the glory of God as their supreme joy. A lot of times we're, we're positioned in a way or postured in a way towards others that love means not bringing up uncomfortable conversations. And we think that that's loving, that we just leave them alone. That's neglect. Love is pressing in. Love is engaging, okay? And ultimately, helping people identify where their true treasure really lies, okay? I'll illustrate this with a story. Now, this story has no significant spiritual purpose other than to show you maybe how obnoxious I can possibly be and, and ultimately how it's easy for us to find our treasure in other things, okay? So uh, when I, I served on a staff in Dallas, Texas uh, for several years, and my best friend served with me, and we enjoyed pulling pranks on people. Anybody? Like you love pulling pranks. Come on. Guys, you got to have more fun. I'm going to make sure that I pull a prank on all of you, okay? Um, some of you have been the great recipient of my pranks, and uh, I find great joy in that. And, uh, and, and so I, I hope I get the opportunity to. But my friend who I served on staff with, uh, he was my best friend and we loved pulling pranks together. And we had another friend on staff and he had a baseball signed by Babe Ruth in a glass case on his desk. Like he, he loved that baseball. Anytime you would walk in his office, he's like, hey man, check out this baseball. This baseball signed by Babe Ruth. And so we thought it would be hilarious um, obnoxious to, uh, to open that case and remove that baseball and to just set aside that baseball, but take another baseball and put our own autograph on there, Babe Ruth, and, uh, and just leave the glass case sitting there on his desk. And then we were right outside the window there throwing a baseball around. So you can imagine when he comes back to his office, he walks in, he sees his desk. There's an empty glass case where the baseball once sat and he looks up and outdoors right there, two of us obnoxiously throwing a baseball back and forth. Now you can imagine how he responded, right? What are you guys doing? Do you know who that's signed by? And we're like, no, man, we just found this baseball. It was laying around and we're just tossing this baseball. He's like, dude, that baseball's signed by Babe Ruth. And, and so like we toss it over to him and, you know, he glances it over and he doesn't give it, you know, much thought, but he is distraught over the fact that we're throwing this Babe Ruth baseball. Now, what's the point of the story? The point of the story is of like, we treasure, the things that we treasure are the things that we are most afraid of losing. And, and we got to identify, like, what are the things that we treasure? Now, Babe Ruth baseball is valuable, all right? You shouldn't throw around a Babe Ruth baseball, okay? Like, that's a second, maybe like secondary to Jesus, okay? Babe Ruth baseball. You get the humor, okay? But 
the idea is like, we got to identify like, what are the things that we treasure? What are the things that just get under our skin that cause us like our blood pressure to rise, anxiety to fill our hearts because we're so afraid of losing. And what Jesus is doing, Jesus is taking this whole chapter and he's moving them to see, I'm, I'm helping you identify Jesus as the most greatest, tre- the greatest treasure and the most supreme joy. He's leading us to see Jesus as our greatest treasure and most supreme joy because we often exchange the truth about God for a lie. It tells us that in Romans 1.25, that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. All that Jesus was created to be, all that Jesus was made to be for us, we exchange that for something secondary, something that is not worthy of our worship and adoration, something that is not worthy of us standing on a Sunday morning and singing, holy, holy, holy. And yet we, we give that worship away. And so what is your greatest treasure and supreme joy? And that's where we're going today. That's a long, that's like a 20 minute introduction of where we're going. And we're going to move really quick to the end here. But What is it that gives you meaning, significance, purpose? What is your functional savior? What is it that you value most? What do you look to to bring ultimate joy, hope, satisfaction in life? Where do you go when you're stressed out? What do you do when you're exhausted, unappreciated, afraid? What do you fantasize about? What is your if only, if only I had this, I would, I would be happy, I would be joyful. What do you sacrifice for? What do you fear? What do you not want in your life? What do you tend to worry about? What do you pray for? What do you wake up in the morning thinking of? What do you talk about most? What do you look to to deliver you? If you were to define hell and then ask what saves you from it, whatever you look to deliver you from hell is your God, is the thing that you treasure, is the thing that you're looking to grasp to have the most supreme joy. That's your greatest treasure. And so what I love about Mary and Martha in the story is when hell breaks out in their life, when everything in their life seems to just kind of unfold and they're like, oh my gosh, what do we do? Where do they go? They go to Jesus. They go to Jesus. And so the three things I want you to see here this morning, the commitment of Jesus, okay? The courage of Thomas and the confidence of Mary, Okay, the commitment of Jesus, the courage of Thomas, and the confidence of Mary. <clears throat> the commitment of Jesus, John 11, 7 through 10. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? You remember back in John chapter 10? We just read Jesus just pulled off like that ninja move and somehow got out of their, you know, their stoning and somehow was able to, to move and, and distance himself from the Jews. Like Jesus was there claiming to be God, claiming, and, and they were saying, you know, everything that he was saying was blasphemous. And so they pick up stones and they're ready to stone him and Jesus moves away. Well, here Jesus is saying, I got to go back. And they're like, why would you go back? Don't you know like what you just left? Don't you know that there, there's people there who are trying to persecute you? Don't you know that there's people there who are trying to stone you? 
And Jesus answered them and said, are there not 12 hours in the day? And so the way that they looked at time, you know, they weren't wearing their Garmin, you know, timepiece. They looked at it and they said there was 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of dark, and we're to work while it's day. And Jesus was, was talking about the opportunity that they had. Like he was saying, hey, it's, it's daytime. It's, it's now is the opportune time. Ultimately, Jesus is, is going to go to the cross and Jesus is going to say, you know, my time is going to expire. My time on earth is going to expire. And so I have this allotted amount of time. I have this specific amount of time that I'm going to invest and I'm going to use it to do one thing to help make sure that people know what their greatest treasure is. That's what he says he's gonna do. And I want you to see the commitment of Jesus. Jesus is going, I have a limited amount of time. And, and, and it's only this amount of time. And soon it's going to be night and people stumble in the dark. I have time of the day. Here's the time of day. And I'm gonna use it to produce something in them. And it's for their good that I'm gonna do this. And so I'm going to use this amount of time. And not only am I going to use this amount of time, but I'm going to go back to the very place they were trying to kill me. I'm going back to the very place that they were trying to take my life. And this illustrates the love that Jesus has for this family, but also for you. The fact that, that Jesus would do this, because Jesus not only goes and steps back into persecution and the, the possible threat of his life being taken, but eventually would go and give his life for you and I, that he would give of his life so that you and I can know him as our supreme joy and greatest treasure. Have you ever had a, um, as, as maybe way of illustration, like something you go, I don't really want to do it, but I'm going to do it because I love that person, okay? For me, that was going to the symphony, okay? Anybody symphony fans? Come on, all right? Same amount that like pranks, okay? So my wife really wanted to go to the symphony, and I knew she's not like a big gift person. She, she's like, I, I like memories. I like doing stuff with you. And so she wanted to go to the symphony. I'm like, okay, we're going to go to the symphony. And I'll just say that we went to the symphony, but we left early. Okay. We left early. I gave it all I had. I told you, like I gave it all I had. And, and, and we went and I was like, showed you how much I love you. Like we're here at the symphony and uh, we made it like 30 minutes. All right. Here's the thing. Some, for some odd reason, she loves being with me. So that was the greatest gift, all right? But we, we limited amount at, of time at the symphony. Now, I'm not trying to compare Jesus stepping back into being stoned as, being, as comparison to me going to the symphony. But here's the thing, lesser to the greater. You've heard Jesus use this analogy. If I won't even go to a symphony, how many of us would be willing to go to persecution and death and possible stoning for someone else. It's crazy. 
But that's the love that Jesus has. That's the commitment that Jesus has. And so he is stepping in. I failed at sticking to my commitment to go to the symphony. Jesus is not failing in his commitment. Jesus is going to go. He's going to step into this environment and says, hey, I'm, I'm pressing in under fear of death, under the limited amount of time that I have, I'm going to be near my people. I'm going to produce something in them because I love them. This is the commitment of Jesus that he has for each of us. The second thing is this, the courage of Thomas. Now, how many of you know Thomas by another name? You know Thomas is doubting Thomas, right? And Thomas gets a bad rap. And if we kind of take what happens later in the life of, of Thomas where he didn't really believe, we can kind of put that onto this story and be like, oh, here he is again, oh, doubting Thomas. You're like not super positive, right? So in John chapter 11, 11 through 16, it says, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, okay? Now they're not gonna understand, okay? He says, but I go to awaken them. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Everyone knows that if you're sick, a little bit of sleep and chicken noodle soup, and you're good to go, right? And so they're like, that's awesome. He's sleeping, that's good to hear, Jesus. Like, we're so thankful that he's there. He's recovering. Martha and Mary are there taking care of him. He's got chicken noodle soup by his bedside. He's going to be made well. He's going to be good. And Jesus said, uh, guys, Lazarus has died. Lazarus has died. Now, we know the end of the story. Again, we, we kind of let the cat out of the bag. We, we kind of spoiled the end of the story. Jesus is going to rise. But I, it's important for us to understand that they experienced real death. They spent days, they, they buried their brother. They took Lazarus. They, they wrapped him in cloths. They, they presented him for burial. They, they put him in the tomb. They, 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 they mourned. They, they, if you've ever been around death, like there is no sense in their mind that they're thinking that he's going to rise. They experienced the real loss. And so when Jesus says these words, they, they hit hard. Lazarus has died. And in verse 15, we see another weird statement of Jesus here. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Man, Jesus can sound heartless, right? Like we read that statement and, and we're going, Jesus, I don't know that that's best use of words. Now, I would tell you, it's not up to us to really tell Jesus what he should say or shouldn't say. But Jesus, like, I don't know, maybe you need to go through a grief counseling class, all right? Right after you say someone's died, you probably shouldn't follow that up with, I'm glad that I wasn't there. It's not hopeful, except that he goes on and says, so that you may believe, so that you may believe in me in a deeper way. Ultimately, what they're saying in verse 12 is when the disciples hear that, Jesus, that Lazarus is sick, they're going, oh, if he's sick, he's going to get better. We don't need to go. Let's stay here. It's safe here. Let's not step back in proximity to those people who are stoning you or want to kill you. Um, let's, let's just hang tight right here. And what Jesus is ultimately going to do is he's saying, no, we got to press in. His commitment towards them. He's, he's committed to them. And he says, I'm glad. 
And then we see Thomas. And what Thomas is, is going to say is, uh, Jesus says, let us go to him. And Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, he was the one in the midst of that group that at that moment said, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, again, that may not sound like a hopeful statement. Hey, Jesus is stepping back into the midst of persecution. Jesus is stepping back into people who want to take of his life. And instead of being in a place of fear, he shows courage. And he's like, if Jesus is going, we're just going to go with him, even if that means we're going to die with him. Even if that means we're, we're going to go and we're going to be persecuted, we're going to give of our life with Jesus. Now, if you know the very end of the story, like here we see Thomas with great boldness and courage. We're going to see at the very end of the story in John chapter 20, 24 through 28. It says, now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. This is after his resurrection. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into the side where they put the spear, I will never believe. And eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. What does this tell me? We look at the, the story in, in John chapter 11. We look at the story in John chapter 20. Here's what it tells me. We are all going to struggle with unbelief. We're, we're all going to live in fear and uncertainty in life at different times. And what we're given in the Bible is not stories of people standing so strong in their faith and living in a constant state of belief, but people struggling. Stories of broken people that Jesus is working in. And Thomas is one of those broken people that in this moment, he moves forward in a place of great boldness and courage. And we keep turning and flipping the page and we get to John chapter 20 and he's back to a place of unbelief. And the whole gospel of John is written to us so that we may firm up what we believe. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying I'm not gonna always do what you want me to do because I want to show you a deeper part of who I am. I'm glad that I didn't come because it's gonna lead to your belief. That Jesus is gonna work things in our life to move us to greater belief and courage. That Jesus is gonna work things in our life. He's gonna orchestrate. He's gonna be doing 10,000 things and we may only be aware of three of them to move us to greater belief that there are things that are happening in your life right now that maybe we have the courage to step forward in and be with Jesus, but tomorrow we don't. But he's working in all of that to help stir us to greater belief. So let us also go that we may die with him. And then lastly, I want you to see the confidence of Mary. I, I actually misprinted this. It should be the confidence of Martha, okay? And what's interesting about this story is uh, Mary's just seated at the house still. That's the way the story unfolds. If you know the story of, 
of uh, Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. Uh, it's the story where Martha criticized her sister because like she was just sitting, like, tell, tell my sister to get up and do the chores with me. And Jesus was like, oh, your sister has chosen what is right. You know, she's with me. She's present with me. Well, here again, we see Mary remains seated at the house. That's what the text says. So Martha's the one who is out, you know, pursuing Jesus and meeting with Jesus. So it's the confidence of Martha. Although I believe Mary shows the same type of faith. It's the confidence of Martha. Uh, we read in this text in verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, four days is significance, okay, uh, is, is significant. There was a Jewish belief that the soul of a person would stay near the grave or near the body for three days, hoping to be able to uh, return to the body. Now, Jesus doesn't necessarily believe in the superstition, but to ensure that no one confuses that what Jesus is doing here as a mere resuscitation or some... Uh, something other than divine miraculous power that's at work, he waits the four days. He waits until like the body begins to decompose. And we're gonna read later on that when Jesus asks for the stone to be removed, they, they're like, you shouldn't go in there. It stinks. Like the body is already going to be decaying and decomposing. You shouldn't go in. And so this is the time frame that, that Jesus would wait so that it can be certain that a divine miraculous power has come upon this moment, okay? And so we see in this, this story a statement of faith from Martha where we see this confidence proclaimed. And again, you can read this statement and this can sound like a rebuke. Again, if we want to go over to the story in Luke chapter 10, Martha and Mary, when they're there and Mary is worshiping Jesus and Martha is busy and distracted by many things, it sounded like a rebuke. Tell my sister to help. This statement can also sound like a rebuke, but it's more of a regret. And, and I, I hope to illustrate, and it's really a statement of faith. One commentator said this, it may well echo what she and Mary had often said to one another during the past few days as they waited for Jesus. And it's this statement. If Jesus had been here, my brother would not have died. And again, it wasn't, Jesus, if you would have been here and, and look at rebuking him from, for not being present, it's a statement of faith in, in, say, in saying, if Jesus would have been present, I, knew, I, I know that this wouldn't have ended in death. I know that he would have been able to preserve his life. This is a statement of faith. And ultimately, the, the reason why is, is we got to trace the timeline and how we know that is, is that Martha and Mary already knew that when word arrived at Jesus her brother had already died. The way the, way the time, timeline kind of unfolds, Je Jesus, they already knew that Lazarus was dead by the time that, that that news arrived and the messenger arrived there with Jesus. And so we see in this is just a hopeful statement of faith that she believed in the power of Jesus, that if Jesus was present, this is the confidence we see in Martha. If Jesus was present, 
he would have been able to bring transformation. And my question for us this morning is, where in life do you believe that the presence of Jesus would bring about transformation? Where do you have that statement of faith that would truly say, if Jesus were present, if Jesus were present in my relationships, he could give it life. If Jesus were present in my workplace, he could give it life. If Jesus were present in my marriage, he could give it life. If Jesus were present in my finances, he could give it life. If Jesus were present in my conversations, he could give it life. If Jesus was present in my future plans, he could give it life. If Jesus were present in my family, he could give it life and we could fill in the blank. Jesus, if you were present in my blank, you could give it life. And Jesus is doing and orchestrating all of these events in John chapter 11 to show you that he is. That he is present. And that the resurrection power that he's about to perform in the life of Lazarus is is present with us. That that transforming power is present with us. Jesus is present with us. And here's what I would tell you is because before he even arrived with Martha and Mary, he already knew that Lazarus had died. In John chapter 11, verse 14, when he's talking to the disciples, he says he's fallen asleep and they confuse that saying, hey, he's gonna get better. He goes, no guys, hey, he's, he's died. He's passed, he's gone. He knew. He knows Jesus is present. Jesus is present. And in John chapter 11, 23, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Now she doesn't understand this to mean right now. She takes it as a future resurrection. Yeah, it's going to happen at the, on the last day. And Jesus responds to her and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked her a question, do you believe this? Now she has no idea. I I want you to be brought back. Her brother lies in the grave. It's been four days. He's gone. He speaks about the resurrection. Her mind turns to last days. And even in the midst of not getting what she wants, not getting what she, and and not receiving what she desires, because the resurrection of Lazarus hasn't happened, she's still able to worship. She ultimately says, you might not have done what I wanted you to do but I still worship you. I still worship you. And that's how we know that Jesus is our greatest treasure. That even though we don't get what we want, we get him. And when we're satisfied in that, we know he's our greatest treasure. No matter what he does, Martha still knows who he is. No matter how he responds, Martha still knows who he is. Because in this, we see the statement of faith. Do you believe this? And she says in verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, 
who is coming into the world. In the midst of great loss, in the midst of great tragedy, in the midst of great suffering, what she wanted was her brother to be made well. But even though her brother was not made well, she was still able to worship Jesus as her greatest treasure and most supreme joy. I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come back forward. And we're going to have an extended response time this morning. And uh, by way of application, I want to answer a couple questions and, and give you uh, some time to focus and respond on these this morning. The first one being, what would you change in your life? What would change in your life if you believed that he who is the resurrection and the life is present with you? If, if Jesus is working in this situation, in these circumstances, to produce belief and greatest joy and to, to be our most supreme treasure in life? What would change in our life if we really believe that, that the, the one who holds resurrection and life is present with us? How would that change Monday morning for you? Maybe the second question for you to focus on this morning is, what are you currently facing in life that needs John 12 vision. And what I mean by that is, is what are we currently walking through right now that we need to know that it's all gonna end in worship? Now, it may not end in worship tomorrow, but I know the end of this story is good news. And so however you read it, whether it happens in this lifetime or it happens in the life to come, it all ends in worship. That Jesus is going to make all things right, all things good. Everything's going to be restored. No more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more death. That's where the story's going. And so we need John 12 vision. We need an internal perspective to be able to see that it all ends in worship. And ultimately, we see this snapshot happen in, in a page turn here. We see that this, this story that ended with such great tragedy and pain here, ultimately we turn the page and we see it, it moves to unrestrained worship. Where do we need John 12 vision this morning? Maybe lastly, what circumstances of life are keeping you from worshiping and saying, you are the Christ, the son of God, not who is coming, but who has come. He has come. Jesus is heading towards his own death and his own resurrection. And he's doing that for you to see him as your greatest treasure. Maybe this morning you've never given your life to Jesus. I'm gonna invite our prayer team to come forward. Our prayer team is gonna be um, postured around the room and they're gonna be here to pray for you this morning, to encourage you. Maybe as you're wrestling with some of these questions, maybe there's circumstances of life that you are seeking to have John 12 vision on and, and you're going, man, I just, I, I want someone to pray for me. I wanna be led to a place of encouragement. Uh, would you let us pray for you this morning? Would you let us just encourage you and proclaim the good news of Jesus over you? Maybe this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never trusted and put your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Maybe this morning you want to come to a place. I want Jesus to be my greatest treasure. 
That's the one treasure in life that can never be taken, that we never, no longer have to live in fear of losing. Jesus is with us forever. So maybe this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus, you would just come and say, I want to give my life to Jesus. They're equipped to help lead you into a time of prayer and acknowledgement of our own sinfulness and need for Jesus. And so we would just uh, invite you to come this morning. I'll end with this. It's my last quote by John Piper. And just a reminder to us all this morning, God is doing more than we know. God is doing more than we know. God is at work more than we know. And in the meantime, trust him and treasure him above all things. We can worship him in the midst of waiting. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for our time together. Lord, thank you for your commitment to us. Thank you that you pursue us at all cost. Lord, you have a limited amount of time and you go, I'm going to them. I'm pressing into areas of uncomfort to make the good news of Jesus known so that they may believe and know me as their greatest treasure. Thank you for doing that for us. Thank you for pressing into ultimate uncomfort, discomfort by going to the cross for us, by sacrificing your life so that we might be set free, dying for our sins on the cross so that we might spend eternity with you. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for the courage of Thomas. We thank you that in this moment, he he had a clear picture and was willing to stand with you in that moment. Lord, help us to have that, that boldness, that courage, that faith that sees you for who you really are. And Lord, help us to have the confidence to say and declare that you're God and that I'll worship you no matter what circumstances I'm facing even though the outcome is unclear, even though I, I haven't experienced true resurrection yet, Lord, I worship you. I praise you right now here in this moment in the midst of waiting, we give you praise. Lord, thank you for our time this morning. May we respond this morning in faith, in repentance. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.